Good evening. The Senate announces an agreement to allow the feds to negotiate drug prices. Biden targets methane at COP26, opening statements in the trial of a teenage killer. And the mayor says 92, the mayor of New York says 92 percent of city workers are vaccinated in COVID, against COVID, as New Yorkers, Virginians and others head to the polls. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced this afternoon that Democrats have reached agreement on cutting the cost of prescription drugs and that the deal has the backing of Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema. I'm pleased to announce that an agreement has been reached to lower prescription drug prices for seniors and families in the Build Back Better legislation. Fixing prescription drug pricing has consistently been a top issue for Americans year after year including the vast majority of both Democrats and Republicans who want to see a change because they simply cannot afford their medications. We've heard this from people across the country who have serious illnesses and can't afford their medicine. What a painstaking position to be in. It's horrible. Today, we've taken a massive step forward in helping alleviate that problem. By empowering Medicare to directly negotiate prices in Part B and Part D, this deal will directly reduce out-of-pocket drug spending for millions of patients every time they visit the pharmacy or doctor. It will cap out-of-pocket spending at 2000 per year, ending the days where a life-changing diagnosis could mean thousands upon thousands of dollars in new expenses. And it will reform the entire industry to stop price gouging. And it will reform the entire industry to stop price gouging and change both drug company and health insurer incentives to make sure our country's drug pricing system benefits patients, not corporations. And as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the agreement would also reduce the cost of insulin to $35 per injection. And today was day two of the United Nations Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland, where leaders and activists differed in their assessment of how things are going. Doug Wood reports. Day two of COP26 brought some much-needed good news after Monday's bombshell that the U.S. may not be able to live up to its commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because of the objections of one senator from West Virginia. Senator Manchin's statement that he may not be able to support the pared-down $1.75 trillion spending bill in Congress because of its climate change provisions was a bucket of ice-cold water on what up to that point had been an upbeat mood at COP26. Senator Manchin, a close ally of the oil, gas, and coal industries, claims he wants to understand exactly how the provisions of the bill will affect his friends before he agrees to anything. Simply put, I will not support a bill that is this consequential without thoroughly understanding the impact that it'll have on our national debt, our economy, and most importantly, all of our American people. Every elected representative needs to know what they are voting for and the impact it has, not only on their constituents, but the entire country. However, as if to underscore that the world can still move forward without the United States, leaders representing more than 85% of the world's forests agreed today to halt and reverse deforestation by 2030. The countries signing the pledge include Canada, Brazil, Russia, China, Indonesia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the U.S., and the U.K., Some of the funding committed to this effort will go to developing countries to restore damaged land, prevent wildfires, and support indigenous communities. 
President Biden tried to put the best face on the conference. Here's some of what he had to say at the press conference today. With a lot of good substantive meetings and with my fellow leaders, and most of all, it was critically important for the United States to be here. Today, I spoke to leaders of forested nations, island nations, developing countries. My message to them was the United States is going to be their partner as we meet this climate crisis. Glasgow must start, uh, be the start, as you're tired of hearing me say it, but a decisive decade of action so we can keep a limit of 1.5 degrees within the reach of us and the rest of the world. We have to keep accelerating our progress. Today's agreement by more than 100 countries representing 85% of the world's forests to halt and reverse deforestation by 2030 is a great example, a great example of the kind of ambition we need, and the United States is proud, proud to have initiated and supported it. Not everyone is buying this optimistic assessment of the situation in Glasgow. Greta Thunberg, speaking to a large group of protesters outside the summit, made it clear that she thinks the only way forward is for the people themselves to take action. This COP26 is so far just like the previous COPs, and that has led us nowhere. They have led us nowhere. Inside COP, there are just politicians and people in power pretending to take our future seriously, to, pretending to take the present seriously of the people who are being affected already today by the climate crisis. Change is not going to come from inside there. That is not leadership. This is leadership. And so it goes. Optimists inside hoping that making promises and setting targets is actually making progress. Others on the outside believing our last best chance is slipping away. Doug Wood, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Doug. In a more climate summit news, world leaders promised to protect Earth's forests, cut methane emissions, and help South Africa wean itself off coal. The United Kingdom, represented by Prime Minister Boris Johnson, said it had received pledges from leaders representing more than 85% of the world's forests to halt and reverse deforestation by 2030. And President Biden says the United States will take unilateral steps to cut methane emissions. Methane has more than 80 times the warming power of carbon dioxide. Today, I'm announcing the next steps to reduce U.S. methane emissions. We're proposing two new rules, one through our Environmental Protection Agency that's going to reduce methane losses from new and existing oil and gas pipelines, and one through the Department of Transportation to reduce wasteful and potential dangerous leaks from natural gas pipelines. They have authority over that area. We're also launching a new initiative to work with our farmers, and our ranchers to introduce climate-sparred agricultural practices and reduce methane on farms, which is a significant source as well. And this is all part of our new methane strategy, which focuses on reducing the largest source of methane emissions while putting thousands, thousands of skilled workers on the job all across the United States, and I expect in your countries as well. This isn't just something we have to do to protect the environment in our future. It's an enormous opportunity, enormous opportunity for all of us, all of our nations, to create jobs and make meeting climate goals a core part of our global economic recovery as well. And as President Biden speaking about methane, according to the Environmental Defense Fund, at least 25 percent of today's warming is driven by methane from human actions. And in climate news closer to home, 
a project that might set the standard for how infrastructure and climate development happens in the United States has attracted another lawsuit from angry residents. On Monday, the city began tearing up tennis courts in East River Park and its first move to begin demolishing the 60-acre park and raise it about 10 feet, cutting down 1,000 old-growth trees in the process. Two activists were arrested. The unpopular project was foisted on the community in 2019 after the city had backed out of an earlier plan that had community support. Last week, community activist and attorney Arthur Schwartz argued an appeal of a lawsuit claiming the project violates a law called alienation that requires the state to oversee any projects that change a city park. Schwartz says the de Blasio administration seems to want to go it alone on the $1.3 billion project without state oversight. In the end, that they basically have nobody in an elected position other than the mayor overseeing what's going to get built there. So the lawsuit saying this is not a park plan, this is a flood protection plan. It's turning the park into a flood wall, and it has to get approved by the state legislature. We filed suit in February. We sought an injunction, and then they said we're not building it till at least the fall. So we just argued the case in August. We lost. We filed an appeal. They just started yesterday, the first time they actually brought a bulldozer and, and dump trucks into the park. So we argued our appeal on the 27th. Even at that time, we didn't know that they were going to start construction yet. So now that they started construction, we went to the appellate court and asked them to stop the construction until they make a decision. We think we have a very strong case. And you have a new suit you're doing as well, another one? Back in July, they had a bidding process. There was only two bidders to do this $1.3 billion project. The city picked one of the two bidders, the one who had the lowest bid, they sent it to the controller, Scott Stringer. The controller is supposed to sign off on any project like this. The controller sent it back to the mayor and he said, is not a sufficient explanation of how they're going to meet the city's MWBE subcontractor rules. They sent it back to the mayor. And two days later, he just signed the contract, which he theoretically has the power to do, but he didn't explain why he was doing that. M- MW is minority. Yeah. Uh, w is women. BES Enterprises. The plaintiff in that case is actually going to be the Black Institute, which is a civil rights organization run by Bertha Lewis, a longtime civil rights activist in New York, and the Women's Empowerment Group, which is a Brooklyn-based women's organization, who are upset that the mayor is ignoring the MWBE requirements that exist not only in city regulations, but the contract itself says that contractor would abide by all state and federal MWBE regulations, and they're not, but they signed the contract anyway. So this is a second avenue of attack that we're going to take on it. We're hoping to have that in court. Sure. The flood, Sandy, was eight years ago, nine years ago, and they had rainstorms, so there's other problems, too, that they have. Why the intense obsession with this project? You can't challenge something as being bizarre in court, but it's bizarre because you're building this flood wall from Montgomery Street to 14th Street. And then north of there, if the East River rises, like they say it's going to rise six, seven feet, the water would just go around the wall. And they're not building up Battery Park eight to ten feet. They're not building Hudson River Park up eight to ten feet. They're not building Riverside Park up eight to ten feet. All those parks flooded massively during Hurricane Sandy. Lower Manhattan was a mess. Why this plan? I don't know. Some contractors 
going to make $1.3 billion. de Blasio clearly trying to get shovels in the ground before he leaves office, like a lot of his other programs that have benefited developers all over the city. Who the hell knows why Bill turned out to be the best friend developers and contractors ever had. Nobody understands why he's characterizing himself as a progressive or why he thinks he has any great wellspring of support. I would say, my opinion, he's he may leave office as the most unpopular mayor ever in the history of New York, and that includes Rudy. Attorney Arthur Schwartz represents several organizations suing the city to stop a flood control plan that would devastate a 60-acre park in lower Manhattan, a very crowded part of the city with very few parks. And New York City voters are heading to the polls today. Eric Adams is the favorite to win over GOP opponent Guardian Angel Curtis Sliwa. The Lower East Side Council person Carlina Rivera, up for re-election, spoke with Lincoln Anderson, editor of The Village Sun, a community newspaper. Rivera says, every single day I'm fighting for a better, brighter future for the people of District 2. Adding the Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project is part of that effort. We're ensuring access to green open spaces for generations to come while also maintaining what neighbors love about the park now. Meanwhile, one of Rivera's election opponents, Ali Ryan, got arrested Monday trying to block the demolition of East River Park's tennis courts, the opening salvo of the city's total demolition plan for the 82-year-old 60-acre waterfront park. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. In more election news, voters in Minneapolis were deciding Tuesday whether to replace the city's police department with a new Department of Public Safety. More than a year after George Floyd's death under the knee of a white police officer launched a movement to defund or abolish police across the country. Democratic Mayor Jacob Fry was also in a tough fight for a second term, facing a bevy of opponents who have attacked him for his leadership in the wake of Floyd's death. Frey opposes the policing amendment. Two of his leading challengers in the field of 17 candidates. Candidates strongly support the proposal. The future of policing in the city where Floyd's death in May 2020 launched a nationwide reckoning on racial justice overshadowed everything on the municipal ballot. The debate brought national attention to the election as well as a river of -of out-of-state money seeking to influence a contest that could shape changes in policing throughout the nation. And in Kenosha, Wisconsin, jurors heard starkly different portrayals of Kyle Rittenhouse, instigator or victim. In opening statements today, it is trial on charges of shooting three men on the streets of Kenosha during a turbulent protest against racial injustice the night and day after a shooting of a black man in the back, Jacob Blake. Rittenhouse's attorneys told the jury that his client acted in self-defense after the first man tried to grab Rittenhouse's gun and others kicked him in the face and clubbed him in the head with a skateboard. The evidence will show, in spite of what the media and public statements and things like that have been, the evidence will show that Kyle Rittenhouse had strong ties to Kenosha. His father lived in Kenosha. His mother lived in Antioch, Illinois. Kyle worked here in Kenosha County. They met other individuals who had come to town at the urging of websites and things like that, and then just a general, I would say, distaste for the destruction. You will see the events of that night unfold in video and still photographs. But ultimately, what this case will come down to, it isn't a who done it, when did it happen, or anything like that. It is, was Kyle Rittenhouse's actions privileged under the law of self-defense? That is, that the defendant believed that there was an actual or imminent unlawful interference with his person, 
The defendant believed that the amount of force which he used or threatened to use was necessary to prevent or terminate the interference and that his belief was reasonable. And that was defense attorney Mark Richards. But prosecutor Thomas Binger said Rittenhouse set the bloodshed in motion when he started a confrontation with the first man gunned down that night. When we talk in this trial about the nights of August 25th, we need to keep in mind the context of that night. We need to keep in mind the fact that there were hundreds of people on the street that night experiencing the same chaos, the same loud noises, the same gunfire, the same arson, the same tear gas, the same hostile confrontations with people who believe the opposite of them. And yet out of these hundreds of people, only one person killed anyone that night. Only one person shot anyone that night. When we consider the reasonableness of the defendant's actions, I ask you to keep that in mind. The defendant throughout this entire evening held himself out as an EMT, as a medic, that he's carrying a medical bag with him, strapped to his body. And yet in this time of Mr. Rosenbaum there on the ground, injured, potentially dying, the defendant offers no aid, but instead runs. And that was the prosecutor in that case, Thomas Binger. Rittenhouse has been painted by supporters on the right, including foes of the Black Lives Matter movement, as a patriot who took a stand against lawlessness by demonstrators and exercised his Second Amendment gun rights. Others see him as a vigilante and a police wannabe. Meanwhile, Circuit Court Judge Bruce Schroeder, a colorful character in his own right, entertained jurors with some typical Wisconsin self-deprecating humor in between uh, witnesses today. Play Jeopardy here when we've got some downtime, as we do right now, because uh, there's nothing we can do at this moment, and uh, we will shortly be able to get underway with things. Chocolate syrup, cassava, melon, and uh, a Playboy model, Marley Renfro, were enlisted to create an iconic scene in this film. I apologize for this. This is sinus, so uh, it's not. Uh, I've been three times vaccinated. And um, I have uh, nasal surgery scheduled on the 21st in the hospital. I haven't tried to reschedule it yet, and I can't, um, but it is scheduled on the 11th. Which would you rather do, be here with me or have your nose operated? I'll, I'll be honest <laughs> with you, I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> and matter of fact, it's, uh, it's November, so do we have veterans in here on either side of the railing? Somebody who served in our military? How about a hand for these people, huh? And that is um, the circuit court judge of Kenosha County, Bruce Schroeder, overseeing the trial of uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. Voters casting ballots in the tight race for Virginia governor ranked the economy as the top issue facing the Commonwealth with the coronavirus pandemic and education trailing. In the contest between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin, 34 percent of Virginia voters say the economy and jobs was the most important issue facing the state. 17 percent named, named COVID-19 and 14 percent choose education. GOP candidate Glenn Youngkin has the support of former President Donald Trump, who has urged his supporters to vote Republican. He says Virginia families are opposed to the Democrats' agenda. What can happen tomorrow will be a statement, a statement that will be heard across this country 
because America needs us to vote tomorrow as well. America's watching. Why? Why? Because all across this country, families are having the same discussions that you all have. I get notes all day long. Glenn, stand up for our kids too. Stand up for the rights of our children because we can't vote this year. You in Virginia do. We have problems in our school boards. We have problems in our schools. Stand up for us, Virginia. Well, let me tell you, Virginia is going to stand up for them tomorrow. That's what we're going to do. GOP candidate Glenn Youngkin, the Democrat, former Virginia governor, and Terry McAuliffe, supports the Biden economic agenda and has been running as much against Trump as Youngkin. I've beaten Trump twice in Virginia. Tomorrow we go 3-0. and Thank you. And let me tell you, this is a tough job. 110,000 state employees, $132 billion billion. This is a lot of work. It's exciting. I love to do the work. But you know what? Running for governor is not a consolation prize from getting fired from your private equity firm. I mean, really? Come on, wake up. And that was uh, the uh, Democrat in the race. Uh, the uh, Virginia race is the most closely watched and competitive contest since Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump last year and is seen as a gauge of voters' feelings ahead of next year's midterms. Biden took Virginia by a comfortable margin last year. And in New York City, the um, I'm sorry, nationally, it's another national story. The wait for children to get vaccinated against COVID-19 is nearly over. And breaking news, a panel of advisors to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, voted unanimously just moments ago to recommend the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine for children's 5 to 11. If CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky signs off on the recommendation, which he's expected to quickly do, shots could begin as soon as this week. The move follows the Food and Drug Administration uh, authorizing smaller sized doses for the younger age group. Last week, the Pfizer shots for kids uses a lower dosage, a third of what is given to adults. And in New York City, the ongoing battle over the city's expanding vaccine mandate continued today, one day after enforcement began for all municipal workers, including NYPD, FDNY, and Department of Sanitation. Officials say 92% of city employees are vaccinated, with several departments improving their numbers today or yesterday. The fire department is now reporting 81% of its employees being vaccinated, with 77% of firefighters, up 2% from Monday. NYPD has 85% of its force vaccinated, but thousands are still on the job due to their are still off the job due to their vaccination status. Mayor Bill de Blasio addressed the issue of the fire department's sick out today. Members of the fire department in uniform who accosted fellow public servants who work for the state senator, mistreated them from everything we've heard. In uniform on duty, Acting on their own political beliefs, that's unacceptable on so many levels. Uh, it's almost impossible to cover all the ground. It's so bad. I want to thank Commissioner Nigro for very aggressively acting with those suspensions. Go ahead, Commissioner. We immediately suspended these members for the maximum allowed to us under the city rules, 28 days. We have a very robust investigative group at the fire department. It'll be investigated, as all of our cases are. People will have a chance to tell their side of the story, and we'll move on from there. And, of course, the penalties can be anywhere from what they've already received up to and including termination 
but I wouldn't try to uh, speculate on where this will lead un until we investigate the whole thing. But initially, as the mayor said, we were very, very troubled by this and took very swift action. And that is the uh, head of the New York City Fire Department, Dan Negro. The um, National Association of Firefighters, President Edward Kelly, denied there is any FDNY sick out. We take great exception to the assertions that New York City firefighters, allegedly in the thousands, are faking on medical leave because of the mandate that's being implied and enforced by Mayor de Blasio's administration. Let me say we reject that assertion. If there are people and, you know, the laws of averages are what they are, we don't condone that. We don't support that. You know, we took an oath to protect the citizens of our cities and the New York City firefighters do an exceptional job here. If you're fit for duty, you should go to work. If you're not, you shouldn't be there. And National Association of Firefighters President Edward Kelly, the firefighters uh, that Mayor de Blasio and the fire commissioner referring to were six uh, who drove a fire engine to New York State Senator Zelda Myrie's office in Brooklyn in protests over the city's COVID-19 vaccine and uh, apparently threatened some of the employees inside. And that's from the news for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. The news was uh, produced with Linda Perry and um, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>